Okay, I think <coughs> I think we can begin. Uh, good morning, everyone. Although maybe it's afternoon by now. I guess good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Atlantic Council. I'm Dick Morningstar. I'm the chairman of the Global Energy Center here, and I'm very pleased uh, to welcome uh, all of you here today uh, for the conversation with Special Envoy for Climate Change, Jonathan Pershing. Uh, and he'll be talking, of course, about the upcoming 22nd Conference of Parties, or COP22, in uh, Marrakesh, Morocco. And we're really, really very proud uh, to have Special Envoy Pershing here uh, to choose the Atlantic Council as a venue to uh, uh, deliver his uh, remarks as to what our priorities are uh, with respect to uh, uh, Marrakesh. Uh, we were very proud last year that uh, Secretary Kerry came and spoke prior to, prior to Paris, and we are doing more and more all the time uh, in the climate change area, and it's certainly a priority uh, for the Global Energy Center. Just last week, uh, we launched a paper with a program by Bob Icord, who's over there, uh, on uh, energy, uh, energy transformation in developing countries after uh, after COP21, uh, which will be, I think, an, is an incredibly important topic uh, with respect to implementation issues, and we'll be carrying on with further programs uh, in that uh, uh, in that vein. It's also especially significant that uh, on October 5th, the European Parliament ratified uh, the Paris Agreement, which brought the, uh, to the total of uh, approvals to the 55%, over the 55% emissions threshold, and that the agreement will actually go into effect uh, next week uh, on the 4th of November. Uh, and so the COP22 meeting is going to be the first meeting uh, of signatories with a ratified agreement uh, and to talk about what's absolutely key, how, how are the commitments going to be implemented. Uh, nothing, obviously that's going to be the key to success. Uh, I'll just uh, say briefly, you have the uh, uh, bio of uh, Dr. Pershing, obviously a distinguished career. Uh, he, before his present position, uh, he was at the Department of Energy, and before that, Deputy, Deputy Special Envoy uh, for Climate Change. Uh, he's had, had a, what, five-year career at IEA as the head of their environmental division, done various other things that you can read in the biography, so that there's nobody who knows more about this stuff than, John, than Jonathan Pershing. Uh, and also, of course, our, the person who will be the moderator of the discussion, uh, Coral, New York Times correspondent Coral Davenport, who her energy and climate expertise, I guess among other things, came as a, as a fellow of the Metcalf Institute and has covered energy and environment for the National Journal, Politico, and Congressional Quarterly, and the New York Times. So uh, this, uh, I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. We thank both of you for being here today. Uh, I want to remind everybody that today's discussion is on the record. Uh, <clears throat> it is streaming live, uh, and you can join the conversation on Twitter uh, at uh, AC Global Energy and the hashtag AC Energy. Uh, so with that, Jonathan, all the floor is yours. Thanks very much, Dick, um, and thank you very much for hosting me here uh, at the Atlantic Council. It's a pleasure to have a chance to be here. I, I can't fill the illustrious shoes of Secretary Kerry, so uh, stay tuned for a somewhat less um, kind of high-level eminent presentation, but hopefully give you some insight into what I think is going on uh, right now in the climate change agenda. It's a pleasure to be here, and good to see you, and, and thanks to all of the folks who've chosen to join online. Uh, it's often interesting to start with kind of a story that, that frames the issue, and I, I've chosen one that I think is uh, relevant to me. I, I grew up in New York. Uh, the South Ferry Whitehall subway station lies at the southernmost tip of Manhattan, and it often uh, is used people commuting on the 1 and the N, the R line. It's got all of these connections that come through it. Uh, on October 29th, uh, 15 million gallons of salt water poured into the South Ferry station from New York Harbor. Salt water was mixed with raw sewage, mixed with debris, completely inundated and destroyed the station's power system. 
The storm submerged the station under 80 feet, wrecking every mechanical system, the escalators, the turnstiles, all the signal equipment. The flooding of the station was one of the consequences of Superstorm Sandy. It's largely immobilized New York, those of you who were there recall that, in October of 2012, not very long ago. Nine of the 14 tunnels that went out of the city were entirely flooded, unable to withstand a 14-foot storm surge. The largest transit system in the nation was crippled. And the cost, the cost to rehabilitate and open this ferry station is going to top that one station will top $630 million. Repairs to continue to this day. The Metropolitan Transit Authority, the MTA in New York, and the local and federal uh, officials have been installing flood covers on all of the openings. There's 540 openings into only the six stations that are in Lower Manhattan. New York wasn't built with Superstorm Sandy in mind. Although New York is actually better prepared than almost any city in the hemisphere, it's devoted years of research and millions of dollars to bolster its resilience to a 100-year flood. But at the end of the day, Sandy represented a one in 700 year event. And when it arrived, every vulnerability was laid bare. According to scientists at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, or NCAR, climate change is partly to blame. And they said, warm seas likely played a role in amping up Superstorm Sandy. Additionally, they said, the fact that sea level has risen due to climate change means that Sandy's surges were able to wash further inland. So here's a framework, here's an outcome Here's a climate change impact. But those are only the tip of the iceberg, those in New York. Take the spread of the Zika virus. We know that mosquitoes chiefly responsible for the spread of Zika as well as West Nile virus and dengue fever and malaria can't survive cold winters. Further, we know the reproductive cycle is accelerated significantly in warmer temperatures. And while epidemiologists and global health experts are still assessing the factors driving the spread of Zika, they agree that climate change is playing an indisputable role in the spread of these diseases in North America. And as colder regions warm and precipitation patterns shift, the mosquitoes that carry Zika are expanding their habitable range. These events aren't contained exclusively in the United States. They're not even in our borders. On a recent trip I took to Nigeria, as part of a swing I did through Africa in preparation for this COP meeting, uh, I talked about the impacts of climate change on a number of national crises with their environment minister. One of the things they've talked about is the, the, the threat that's being uh, developed by Boko Haram. And many, of you, of course, are following the events of the Boko Haram terrorist community. And there's also a second threat that you're probably less aware of, a conflict between the farmers and the land uh, ranchers in the community. In both cases, drought is the culprit. In the northern part of the country, where Boko Haram is, it's led to a failure of subsistence farming. And in many cases, that's driving recruits to the Boko Haram. And in the central part of the country, those same droughts have forced cattle ranchers onto farms and into conflict with farmers. The one end, the crop is drying up, and there's less availability. At the other end, the grazing land is drying up, and there's less availability, and they're crossing borders and coming into conflict. And while the origin of these problems also can't exclusively be laid to climate change, they've been made noticeably worse by climate change. And they'll become worse still as warming continues. And if these stories represent the local and immediate effects of climate, the global impacts are really no less daunting, and the global statistics bear it out. 15 of 16 of the warmest years on record have occurred since 2001. The Arctic ice sheet has hit new lows in its coverage, not only an indication of rapid warming, but in fact an accelerator of that warming, as ice and snow cover that used to reflect heat back into space disappear. Sea level, it's risen an average of nine inches over the last century, and the pace is accelerating. Hurricane intensity and energy has increased by 70% just in recent decades. Our oceans have warmed, and this sounds like a small number, but it's actually enormous. Our oceans have warmed about a half a degree Celsius or one degree Fahrenheit per decade in the last 30 years. These are extraordinary statistics, and they're only a few of the countless ones that we've got. But climate change is a problem that actually does have solutions. It demands collaboration and cooperation across borders. No single nation, no matter how the determination of its leaders manifests, can turn back these global forces on its own. But driven by this threat, the global community has begun to rise to the challenge, although fortunately it's not a moment too soon. In December of 2015, 195 countries came together in the suburbs of Paris in search of common ground to help solve this problem. 
and by any measure, they clearly succeeded. So as the US Special Envoy for Climate Change, I'm responsible for representing the United States across a number of international negotiations, but, but I really can't claim credit for Paris. Credit for that is due to my predecessor, many of you know him, Todd Stern, who led the US team through the Paris talks last year and through the first part of the administration. And in this, he was following a very strong lead provided by President Obama and Secretary Kerry, to whom, in my view, we owe an enormous debt of gratitude for having moved us down this agenda with that kind of power. It's useful in trying to evaluate Paris, though, to start a little earlier. Don't start with Paris. Start at the beginning of the UN negotiations way back in the early 1990s. So I was present at the very first meeting of the UN when it became the Convention on Climate Change. It was convened, in fact, by a Republican, by President George Bush, the first George Bush, just outside of Washington, DC. We were meeting in a small hotel in Chantilly in Virginia. It didn't have a lot of pageantry, didn't attract very many people. It had a small number of scientists and policy people, no, no CEOs, no visiting dignitaries, no organizations touting the programs and their climate-friendly credentials but it did set the framework for action. It did establish a forum for further negotiations. The first negotiation that was done underneath the auspices of the UN Convention concluded in 1997. That was the Kyoto Protocol. While the protocol uh, readied a collection of mandatory emissions cuts, it applied them only to developed countries, leaving the rest of the industrializing world, the developing world, to pursue only vague and undefined actions. But 12 years later, also under the offices of the convention, the Copenhagen Accord succeeded in affecting a much wider array of commitments, both for developed and developing countries, for the first time. That represented a major breakthrough and one that really was a precursor for the Paris Agreement. But the session ended chaotically and a global agreement was still not in place. Fast forward to 2015 and the 21st session of the Conference of the Parties to the UN Convention. The French-led session, unlike the one we had in Chantilly, brought nearly 50,000 attendees. Presidents, prime ministers, and CEOs alike, they all competed and tried to outdo each other with sweeping announcements and statements of new and renewed action to combat climate change. And in Paris, we adopted for the first time a strong, a durable agreement known uh, uh, to all nations, and it's a foundation on which we, I think, can build successfully. First and foremost, the Paris Agreement relies on national climate goals. Those are known as nationally determined contributions to help cut greenhouse gas emissions. And virtually all countries put forward these specific goals. The most recent count, 186 nations did so. And the big players are all in. China set for itself a target of a 60 to 65% reduction in emissions intensity, emissions per unit of GDP. India pledged to reduce its emissions intensity by 40% and coupled this with a commitment to build 100 gigawatts of solar power by 2030. The EU, they set for themselves a target of 40% below 1990 levels by the year 2030. The United States, a goal of cutting emissions 26 to 28% below 2005 levels by 2025. Each different, each significant. And the smaller countries we're in as well, this is the major players, but small ones in many cases have even more impressive targets. Costa Rica and a number of small island states in the Pacific have pledged to reduce net emissions to zero. And a number of countries have called for the complete elimination of emissions from their power sector. All of that enshrined in commitments in the nationally determined contributions announced in the run-up to Paris. But the universality of this agreement, the comprehensiveness of coverage, is a first in the annals of our climate talks. Never before have we had this kind of participation. Of course, it was clear that the pledges by themselves wouldn't be sufficient, both diplomatically and, frankly, atmospherically, environmentally. For a deal to work, parties had to have confidence that others would meet these national commitments, their own commitments, and that there would be, therefore, progress. You had to have monitoring, and you had to have a robust system to verify that these goals would move. This is the system that was enshrined in Paris that the negotiations led to. It has uh, layers of accountability. It has review mechanisms to match countries' words with their deeds. And as we work to meet the global goal of limiting warming to well below two degrees. So that's the framework that we adopted. But second, we also had an agreement to ratchet up emissions over time. It was clear that this first phase would not be sufficient to solve the problem and you need to continue to go forward. 
the announced numbers would not keep us below two degrees of warming. To that end, it calls for revisiting national pledges every five years. As countries achieve their targets, as cost of solutions come down, we anticipate that they will make stronger and stronger pledges going forward. And finally, the agreement doesn't just lay out a process for setting and revising individual national contributions, it provides assistance and help for countries to meet their targets. The agreement marshals a broad array of support to help developing nations uh, invest in the infrastructure, in the technology, in the science needed to meet their goals, and to help vulnerable countries become more resilient in the face of certain climate impacts. So that's the architecture, national climate targets, a strong accountability system, a system to track targets, renewing and updates of target over time, and a framework to help support the low carbon transition and help vulnerable countries respond to climate change. But now that the community has taken the step of adopting the agreement, we're faced with the task of implementing it, translating it into tangible action. And already we're beginning to see this happen. In the US, we're hard at work at implementing our own climate contribution. We've adopted new regulations that increase the efficiency of cars, of trucks, of appliances. We're moving to adopt refrigeration and cooling technologies that release fewer and less potent greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And we've developed and hope to soon begin implementing the President's Clean Power Plan to reduce major sources of carbon dioxide emissions from the industrial sector and power plants. And it's worth noting that while there are legal challenges to the Clean Power Plan that are now moving their way through the court system, we are confident that it remains on solid legal footing and will soon begin to bend the curve of emissions from electricity generation. Meanwhile, since Paris, Congress has actually passed laws providing support for renewable energy. These have led to the rapid uptake of clean power. Taken together, all of these initiatives represent really an unprecedented whole of government approach to addressing climate change. And the effects are already apparent. Wind and solar energy accounted for over two-thirds of all new electricity generating capacity installed in the US in 2015. This is according to the Department of Energy, pretty reliable source I worked there. Last year, wind power represented about 41% of all new generating capacity, and in 2015, there were nearly 74,000 megawatts of utility-scale power deployed across 41 states, enough to power more than 17 million households. The US solar industry now employs more people than coal. One in every 78 new jobs last year was in the solar industry. We're also in the process of developing technical projections for the longer term, not stopping in 2025, but looking out beyond that. How can we squeeze the vast, vast bulk of carbon emissions out of our economy by 2050? The so-called mid-century strategies. The pathways we lay out and which we plan to release in a couple of weeks in Morocco will detail scenarios in which the US can build a very low emission economy that lets us play our part in helping achieve our long-term global target of avoiding dangerous climate change. But the dramatic shifts that I've outlined are not limited to the United States. Last year, an estimated 147 gigawatts of renewable power capacity was installed around the world. That's equivalent, just to put it in context, that's equivalent to about 20% of the entire US electrical supply just last year at a global level. China, by itself, announced plans to generate 150 to 200 gigawatts of electricity using solar power by 2020. That's four times their previous target, and the previous target's not very old. China wants to lift its wind power targets to 250 gigawatts by that same year an extraordinary commitment. These numbers are simply enormous. Canada, our neighbor to the north. Prime Minister Trudeau announced in early October that Canada, which by the way is our largest trading partner, would be establishing a carbon tax, starting at $10 a ton Canadian and rising at $10 per year for the next five years. Significant commitment. And in just a few weeks over the course of the last month, we've passed a series of international agreements. In Montreal, back to Canada again, we passed in October, the International Civil Aviation Organization adopted an agreement establishing a global market mechanism for international civil aircraft. For the first time, asking them to offset their emissions. This is a sector that was excluded not only from the original convention, but from every climate agreement since. If international aviation was a country, it would be among the top dozen emitters in the world, and it's growing very quickly. This is a big deal. 
Then, just a couple of weeks later, about a week and a half ago, we finished another breakthrough at a meeting of the parties to the Montreal Protocol in Kigali, Rwanda, where nearly 200 countries agreed to phase down their use of hydrofluorocarbons. That's a potent greenhouse gas, several thousand times more powerful than CO2. And while these gases currently account for only a few percent of global emissions, in the absence of any agreement, they were expected to increase rapidly. And avoiding those emissions brings us much closer to meeting the goals we set in Paris. And perhaps most significantly of all, on October 4th, as was noted that Dick passed on earlier, we passed the threshold required for entry into force of the Paris Agreement. 55 countries representing at least 55% of global emissions, and those numbers continue to grow. Entry into force means that we can expect parties to follow through on what they've said they would do and abide by the provisions of the agreement. And as I've already outlined, these provisions are critical for putting us on a trajectory to meeting our common goals and for ramping up global ambition over time in a transparent and accountable manner. Emission reduction efforts reflect only one part of our implementation agenda. A second is in the arena of mobilizing climate finance. The International Energy Agency made, estimated that the climate pledges made to date and announced in the lead up to Paris would yield a $7.4 trillion global investment in renewable energy in the next two decades. $7.4 trillion over the next two decades. But a lot of banks and sovereign wealth funds and investors don't understand how these technologies and development pipelines function or how to best finance and backstop such projects. Their dollars are currently sidelined while they wait for more aggressive actors in the market and those players to create a template for action. But if we can attract those inactive funds from the banking sector, it really could trigger a new flood of investment in this part of our economy. One third of all developed country debt currently pays a negative interest rate. That means that the bondholders are paying governments to hold about $7 trillion worth of their money. Bondholders are paying governments instead of governments paying bondholders. About $7 trillion is out there in these kinds of accounts. It's an astonishing capital environment. And to me, it suggests that there's really a need for broad-based technology markets to liberate and free some of this unused capital. It's in this context that developed countries have pledged to jointly mobilize $100 billion in low-carbon finance, both from public and private sources, on an annual basis by 2020. And new analysis just released by the OECD shows that we are on a trajectory to meet that pledge. But we know developing countries are going to need more support in the future. We know that public money will never come close to the level required to meet the challenge. The Green Climate Fund, set up in part to support action called for in the Paris Agreement, is using both debt and insurance projects to minimize risk and encourage the movement of private capital. The World Bank, the regional development banks, the world's bilateral development finance institutions, our aid agencies are on a similar pathway seeking to strategically deploy public funds to increase leverage ratios and incentivize more private sector investment. And finally, in addition to the finance, in addition to the mitigation, our implementation pathway has to encompass a major effort to build resilience and adapt to the unavoidable impacts of climate that we already face and that will become more severe as we move to higher temperatures. Even if we were able to halt the rise at only 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is an effort that we are seeking to do under the agreement, the damages would be severe. Context. 2% of the world's population lives at one meter or less above sea level. We currently anticipate that they will rise as much as this or more by the end of the century. That means that nearly 150 million people will need to move. And to frame that, there are currently only 65 people currently in the migrant pool from Syria, from Afghanistan, places that are currently exposed to conflict and persecution. Just sea level rise, not the other damages of drought, not the other storm impacts, not the agricultural impacts, just sea level rise, more than double the current number. We need to consider how to manage the increasingly severe consequences 
Drought, I mentioned that earlier, it won't go away. It affects communities around the world. We have to build resilience for these intense storms. New York is ahead of the curve and still face damages, and they have capacity. Very few others are in that same place. We need to consider how to manage increasing temperatures, not only for their human impact, but because of disease vectors and agricultural productivity. We need climate resilient planning for a climate resilient global economy. All of these issues will be taken up next month in Marrakesh, in Morocco, at the 22nd Conference of the Parties to the Convention, which runs from November 7th to the 18th. I've earlier put out and provided some information on the progress we've made to date, entry into force of Paris, conclusion of the amendment to the Montreal Protocol, but one of the consequences of this is the first meeting of the parties to the Paris Agreement will actually occur in Marrakesh. I anticipate that the session will therefore endorse an accelerated timetable for completion of the work called for in the Paris Agreement. We'd initially thought it would take a number of years for this to happen. It's gone much more quickly, and so we're accelerating the timetable for implementation. The urgency expressed by the rapid completion of national efforts to join means we need to urge our technical experts to keep pace and accelerate their programs. But we also need to guard against the renegotiation of Paris. And in the parlance of these negotiations, we do not want any backsliding. This means we will not countenance any undermining of the basic principles that govern the agreement. In our view, we have moved beyond a world, a bifurcated world, in which developed and developing countries are in two buckets and set against each other. We resolve that. We need to move beyond that. Increasingly, the annual climate meetings are becoming broader in scope, though. They're getting beyond the notion of negotiations to include a wide array of activities by businesses, subnational governments, civil society, from countries around the globe. It offers a high-profile venue for spotlighting what really works in the world in terms of both technology and policy, so we can all learn key lessons and deploy them with all possible speed. We need to use the venue to engage not just chief sustainability officers, but also CEOs, mayors, governors, not just environment ministers or climate ministers, but also foreign ministers, ministers of energy, ministers of agriculture, finance, and the media, and through them, the public at large. So I invite all of you to think about how we can do this most effectively. The grand challenge presented by climate demands continued engagement across the board. We know that in spite of the difficulties in making the transition to a low-carbon economy, the opportunities it presents are really enormous. We also know that the risks of failing to address climate change are actually untenable. Simply put, it's not a choice. Action comes with demonstrable upside potential, while inaction carries with it a terrible downside risk. We now have definitive proof in the United States that we can lower our emissions while simultaneously growing our economy. Between 2000 and 2014, U.S. emissions have fallen 6% while the economy has grown 28%. And it's not just true here at home. For the second year in a row, global GDP grew. In 2015, it grew and the economy grew and emissions stayed flat. We know that dozens of nations around the world have successfully decoupled economic growth from carbon pollution and their economies continue to grow. We've made a significant and historic level of progress this year. The climate conference in November in Morocco, we have a chance to mark further successes as we work to implement the agreement to build new rules for transparency, for finance, for adaptation, for a whole host of other items. But I want to return for just a moment and close with Superstorm Standy. So I grew up in New York, and most of us don't live there. We don't use their subway systems. But the threats that Manhattan faces are really common to all of us, to everyone around the world. We can't freeze time and halt all further impacts of climate change, but with the Paris Agreement in place, we now have a mechanism to marshal our collective will and commit ourselves to do something and do it now. It's a call to action. At the end of the day, it's a call to action the world needs to heed. So let me stop with that, take questions, and look forward to the conversation. Thanks very much.
Jonathan, thank you so much. Um, we'll start now. Uh, we'll turn to um, a Q&A. I'll ask some follow-up questions about uh, some of the issues that you raised. Um, and then we'll turn to the audience. Um, so if you want to be thinking about your questions, uh, we'll go in about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, you mentioned that in recent weeks there has been this really surprising, unprecedented uh, trifecta of developments in the international climate community space. Uh, Paris entering into force, uh, the Kigali Amendment on um, high-potency greenhouse gas coolants, um, and the aviation agreement as well, the, the global aviation community agreeing to a cap-and-trade program. At the same time, um, no one who's looking at, at, at these three um, at these three developments says this is enough to solve the problem. All of them have come under criticism. Paris has entered into force, but there still aren't legal enforcements or teeth or sanctions if countries choose not to follow through on their pledges. Uh, criticism of the aviation agreement is a lot of that deal was written by uh, the airlines themselves. It's been criticized as business as usual. Uh, Kigali agreement um, got a lot of praise, but definitely was not as strong, certainly as the United States would have wanted. Um, talk about that sort of, there's this, this real political momentum, um, but the substance isn't, you know, does, doesn't necessarily meet up. So thanks very much, Coral. Listen, I think as we look at this set of problems, we have to think about it in two contexts. The first one is where we are today and what we can do immediately. Where does, what do the politics lend themselves to? What are the conflicts? What are the other issues that we're grappling with? And the second is where do we want to be in 50, 75, 100 years in terms of our reduction strategies? The second one's kind of easy. You can always make magic happen somewhere out uh, you know, 50 years from now and say emissions will miraculously uh, shut down. But you have to get there, and that requires a collective set of actors to engage in a way that's difficult. So let's take a look at each of these three arenas. Let's start off with the aviation sector. Clearly, the aviation sector is looking for alternative ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We're beginning to see the use of biofuels in the aviation sector replacing uh, Jet A. It's actually producing Jet A, so it's a drop-in replacement that you can use without any real change. But it's a trivially small share of the market. So the question is, can you accelerate that? But one of the ways you accelerate that is having a price. And one of the ways you have a price is putting in a regulation and allowing a tradable permit structure. That's what we did. Is it a price that we want to use to drive airlines out of business? Of course not. It's a price you want to use to drive a change in behavior. So it's got to be slow enough to allow the market to keep pace and to catch up and not to change the structure, but fast enough to keep us in the range of where we want to go. This was the model and the balance that we could seek. And of course, it involves the aviation sector. If we had them out and then none of them complied, we would be no better off than if we had no agreement. The second one, the Montreal Protocol structure. This one also has the support of the, uh, the community that's deeply involved in the uses of these gases through which we phase out emissions. The hydrofluorocarbons used for air conditioning, used for chillers, the one that's on now and behind me, uh, the whole conversation on, on your, your car in the summer. Do you want to phase them out tomorrow? No. We don't have replacements. You want to create a process in which there is a steady indication to the market that they need to develop alternatives. There's a, a, a clear signal. There's a clear timetable. Those move much more aggressively than they would have moved in the absence of the agreement. And at the end of the day, those lead to a fundamental shift in what's happening. So we had agreement from the air and refrigeration community, but we also had agreement from the environmental community. They want it to move faster. The air guys want it slower. This is the middle balance that the politics could achieve, and it fundamentally sets a signal that didn't exist before. So in all of these cases, I think that we're in a place that you have to think through, how do you do the next possible step? I think too often in the environmental community, we look for the perfect. I think what we now have is the very, very good. That's not a bad place to start, because in the absence of that, we take no action instead of what I think of as very, very strong action, which fundamentally alters the trajectory that we're on. Um, you talked about one of the, the key pieces of the Paris Agreement, of the broader framework, um, is transparency, mm -hmm. is the idea that all of these countries have put forth these pledges, but the only way this is going to work is if there is monitoring, reporting, verification, if we can really trust that countries are doing what they say 
um, that they will do. But the Paris Accord itself um, really lacks specifics on how that's going to happen. Um, you know, at the time there was a sort of a sense of, well, you know, we'll put that language in and we'll figure out what it's going to look like later. And in the broad international community, there's a real divergence of ideas of, of what that means. Will it be you know, an outside body, an, an international agency that has the authority to drop in and, you know, do surprise inspections? Will, you know, will it be uh, self-reporting by governments? Um, this is really, this is an open question. Talk about that and talk about what, what needs to happen. Thanks. And I think this is a question that a lot of people are asking. So I think it's, it's very well, well framed and, and important to understand. We don't actually have environmental agreements in which there's an outside body that drops in. The black helicopters don't exist. So what we've got instead is a structure which relies on national implementation. And that's actually a pretty robust structure. I don't know how many of you uh, have followed kind of legal course, court cases around domestic compliance with environmental regulations, but there are real consequences to those who are in non-compliance. First, you have EPA coming in and doing some monitoring. That's the monitoring phase. Then have the Department of Justice coming in. And if, in fact, you don't behave, you end up with legal court cases. You end up potentially with jail time. You end up with huge fines. Those are things the international community does not impose. Those are things the domestic and national community imposes. And so the strength of this is in many ways predicated on the willingness of countries to adopt the programs and policies that would lead to implementation. And we actually have pretty good indicators today that countries have begun to put those in place. So far from it being a structure in which we're waiting now to hear for a decade or two decades whether people will comply, we can look at laws that have been imposed in China, in India, in Brazil, in Costa Rica, in the United States, in which compliance is now being promoted. If I take a look at the alternative, I take a look back at Kyoto. Kyoto had a series of non-compliance consequences. The only country ever to go through it was Canada. And Canada ultimately decided it didn't want to comply and was essentially going to withdraw. What we now have is a process in which there are not these kinds of consequences. And China is in, and India is in, and Canada is in, and the US is in. That's a much, much better outcome. And it doesn't appear to have much less force. It appears from our current indicators that we're going to actually meet these. Countries are on trajectories to implement their targets. They put in policies to obligate companies and individual actors to take them on. To me, that shift in the model was what made it possible for countries to join, and at least so far, suggests that countries will meet their objectives. In terms of countries meeting their objectives, uh, the United States under Paris has pledged that it will lower its emissions 25 to 28 percent from 2005 levels by 2025. But there's a lot of analysis showing that right now it's not clear, even given the Clean Power Plan, um, even given the Obama regulations, that it will necessarily get there, especially since, as you pointed out, Clean Power Plan is, plan is still under litigation. Uh, one outcome, even if it's upheld, is that it could have slower rates of, uh, slower timetable for implementation. Um, so, so given that, you know, the, the, U, the uh, under, under the Obama administration, the U.S. is probably going to struggle to meet um, the, the NDC that it's put forth. And of course, under the structure of the Paris Plan in 2020, the US, along with everyone else, has to go back to the table and offer an even stronger plan. What specifically does the next administration need to do to ensure that the US can meet the pledges under the Obama administration and significantly strengthen them? As, again, as, you know, if I had a crystal ball, it'd be fabulous. Um, the, the dynamics of what the next administration will do are a little opaque, I think. Uh, we don't know who the next administration is going to be. But what we can do is take a look at what expectations we put in motion in the course of this agreement and, and where it comes out. So the first thing uh, is to think about the uh, exogenous forces that are independent of the policy. There are a number of things that are now happening in the United States energy sector which drive emissions that are independent of the Clean Power Plan. Uh, the Congress chose to pass a five-year extension for the ITC and the PTC, the production tax credit and the investment tax credit for renewables. There are some analyses that suggest that, in fact, between now and the year 2025, the consequences of those are likely to mean that the Clean Power Plan, no matter if it gets adjusted or not by the courts, will not bite before 2025, which means we'll actually get continued reductions and continued penetration because of these supports. But it goes even beyond that. Because what we're seeing now is a price decline in the marketplace that's very pronounced. Now, part of that's been helped by historically uh, uh, significant investments in R&D made by the government, made by the private sector. Part of it's been helped by a, a change in price globally. 
The costs of solar panels have come down by more than 10 times just in the last uh, decade. It's an extraordinary change in the system. So people expect now that with, this, with the supports that Congress has passed, and by the way, passed after Paris, that Congress has passed, you can now install solar for less than you can install gas, which suggests that the next administration ought to roll back those policies, should sustain those. So just the next administration needs to think about its additional actions that it can take. The 26 to 28% that we've committed ourselves to is very much within grasp. It means you can't let up on the accelerator. It means you have to keep pushing these options forward. And the next generation beyond 2025 is harder. There we have to think about a variety of things. We put some in motion ourselves in the US administration from the Secretary of Energy, Secretary Moniz has done, along with a group of private sector investors, has to double the R&D that we are spending now on clean energy. We ourselves have done that, but we've been joined by the 20 largest R&D investors in the world under something called mission innovation. China is in, India is in, Germany is in, and what we have seen in their budgets is that they're actually doing the doubling over this five-year period. But they're complemented by a set of investments being made by the private sector players. A coalition called the Breakthrough Coalition, which was organized by Bill Gates, has committed itself to put in billions of its own money in investing in the outputs from those research programs. So here is the beginnings of a longer-term strategy. One of the things the Paris Agreement also calls for, and I mentioned briefly in my comments, also calls for is the development of a mid-century strategy. How do you think about the period through 2050? We're looking at a couple of things. What do you believe about the opportunity for clean energy? Is it going to be nuclear power? Will it be carbon capture and storage? How do you think about the price of solar? All of those can be factored in, and you can look at where you're going to head. And on transport, do you think it's going to be electrification of vehicles, the way Tesla is pushing? Think it'll be hydrogen vehicle? Will it be a biofuels program? How do you think about that? And what are the consequences of doing that? What about buildings? You can actually go into a number of buildings today in Washington that are net zero buildings. Not many, there's only a handful, but they're certainly attractive and tenants are often charged a premium for renting those spaces. And we have them in Portland, and we have them in Austin, Texas, and we have them in Beijing, and we have them in Mumbai. This is a different vision for the world that's part of that future. Can we invest in those things? Those are not just federal, those are local, those are state, those are corporate. Those are investments made by NGOs. That dynamic is going to play out in a fundamental way to drive us to a 2050 horizon with an 80% reduction, not the 26 to 28% reduction that we're shooting for in 2025. A lot of the international climate change uh, discussions tend to revolve around a small handful of big players that are the, the biggest emitters in the world, US, India, China, EU. Um, in all these cases, these are big emitters. Um, there might be questions on whether they can reduce emissions as quickly as they've said they will. Um, but the, the leaders of all of those entities have kind of come to the table and said, at least politically, we have the will to do this. The fifth largest emitter and a really important player in this space is Russia. Um, Russia is a petrostate. It depends on production and sales of fossil fuels for, for, for its economy. And Vladimir Putin is one of the only world leaders who has been openly skeptical and mocking of the science of climate change. Uh, the Russian INDC is essentially business as usual. It does not even purport to claim to make ambitious uh, reductions. I would love to know what you uh, hear or see from your Russian counterparts in, in this space, um, and also address the question of, can this be done if you don't have this major player at the table? Now, Russia's a really interesting case. Many of you here in this room probably follow them quite closely. Um, we had last week a meeting called the Pre-COP, right? It's a discussion that happens among a group of about 40 to 50 countries in advance of the, the Conference of the Parties itself. It was held in Morocco. The Russians were invited and didn't come. So in some ways, I think that's the current story of Russia. It's not so much that it's stopping things, it's just not engaging. That's not a good outcome, because as you say, they're a pretty large emitter. But at the end of the day, the fact that they're not blocking things, I think, is an important signal that they're sending. The second thing which I would note is that Russia has been an on and off again player on the climate front. Sometimes they're antagonistic. Sometimes they announce, as Putin did uh, only about a decade ago, not even, about eight years ago, that climate change was horrible. As the fires that consumed much of the steps went through, he thought that climate change was the driver for that. So he kind of blows hot and cold on this particular question. 
The third thing I would say is at the end of the day, the question of Russia's export markets are going to matter a great deal. How is this going to be shaped in the energy infrastructure as we move forward over the next 20 years? Will Europe continue to use gas? What's the dynamic for Germany? Uh, what's the dynamic for Ukraine as a pass-through state? What's the dynamic in terms of Russian uh, comp competition with North Sea supplies, which are declining? How do you think about North Africa, and where does that play into the system? It's a much more complicated story. Let's look at some of the other petro-states that are out there and how they're playing. Maybe they give us some insight into the dynamics in Russia. My favorite one is Saudi Arabia. Major player, major economic market, major exporter on the oil side. Saudi Arabia has announced a series of targets for renewable energy, particular solar power, for a variety of reasons, but that's fundamentally looking at altering its economy. Now, it's not quite Russia. They've got different dynamics. So Saudi Arabia is doing it, one, because as their population grows, they're looking at consuming more and more of their oil domestically, and therefore there's less and less available for export, and therefore a declining earning from that export market. Two, they need to have new jobs, because the oil market doesn't provide very many. And the stability in the kingdom requires that you find new economic opportunities to grow your economy. And they actually see renewables, renewable energy, as providing that marketplace. And three, they're actually threatened by climate change. And while this is not number one or number two, it is a driver for a shift. Because it turns out that they've got sea level rise. A lot of the facilities are on the coast. And they've got already intolerably high temperatures. And only a marginal additional increase could be fatal. So here is a play which you would never, ever have expected five years ago. What happens in five years in Russia? What's their economy going to look like? What's the export market going to move to be? What's the domestic consumption and the domestic demand going to be? To me, these are uncertainties. And if the rest of the world moves down this structure of a change in price, the future Russian leadership, whether it's Putin or someone else, is going to have to manage this. It's independent, in some sense, of the current view. It's a function of economic reality and the issues facing an economy as it lives in a world where it cannot be isolated. If Russia's market to Europe, which is where a lot of its gas goes, dries up, fundamental change in the dynamics of Russian supply and Russian development might move them a different way. If the agricultural productivity sector is not able to keep pace with a shift in climate, fundamental problems for Russia. They have gone through periods where they were exporting vast quantities of American food and foodstuffs. What is climate change doing to the steppes? Not clear. These kinds of things are going to shape their politics and their policies in a way that I think the current administration in Russia is not going to block, but will ultimately have to get in line with. I'm going to wrap a couple of questions into one final concluding question, and then we'll uh, turn to the audience. Um, these will all be pretty quick. Um, in terms of going forward on, on both climate change and climate policy, um, what do you worry about the most? What are you most optimistic about? And what role might you play in a Hillary Clinton administration? Oh, the last one's easy. I haven't been asked, uh, and uh, so I don't know. Um, the, uh, the other two are, I think, uh, more complicated and nuanced. What am I most worried about? I think I'm worried that we will not have the political capacity to keep up on the mitigation side with the rate of change. It's coming faster than we thought. The upside, so are the policies, so is the technology. The downside, the climate's getting worse at about the same rate that our policies are getting better. And the numbers are ones that in neither case do we predict as little as five to six years ago. When we came into office, we thought realistically a 2025 target puts us on a trajectory. Sea level rise was at the upper outer bounds supposed to be a meter. Now the upper outer bounds are two meters, and it looks like we'll have at least a foot already by the end of this decade. This decade, so much faster. On the upside, technology's doing really well. Elon Musk has got a new self-driving electric vehicle that you can now buy, a, you know, you can buy an option to get one in a couple of years. He's going to have it on the market. Maybe his $35,000 car doesn't quite come out, but it's going to be close. Can we do that fast enough? That's the race that we're in, and I worry that we actually won't win. And even if we do win, the, the cost of doing so, because the impacts will continue to grow, we'll still have to face those, and we won't be able to keep up. But what am I optimistic about is the other side. I think that this last month is a fundamental marker of a shift in thinking. Ultimately, who came to submit their instruments of ratification for the, for the Paris Agreement? It was heads of state. They did an, an organization, a meeting organized by the Secretary General of the United Nations. They came in in enormous numbers to sign. 180 countries signed the agreement the first day it was open. We've never had that. The previous high watermark for any agreement was about 70 nations. 
180 countries said, yes, this matters, I'm going to play, and I'm going to send my head of state or my foreign minister to sign on to this deal. That's a huge shift in the politics at the global level, and that leads me to be much more optimistic. So this race, but this potential. Great. And now uh, we'll turn to the audience for questions. I'm sure there's one in the back. Uh, and if you could please state your name and affiliation. Thank you. Uh, Francis Bouchard, Hamilton Place Strategies. Um, thank you for your remarks. You, you mentioned resilience. Um, there's an immense amount happening in that space. You look at the Sunday framework, you look at the G7 work under the Germans, you look at the vulnerable 20. Even in the private sector, there are sectors that are coming together, for example, in the Insurance Development Forum to do this. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the U.S. priorities in the resilience space, but also a little bit about uh, the role of the private sector you see. Are they stepping in? Are they reluctant? Are they ahead of the curve, behind? Thanks very much. I think they fall into a, a couple of different categories. First, on, on the U.S. side, both domestically and then internationally. Uh, there's a lot of work being run uh, out of the Council on Environmental Quality that's really pushing on the insurance front. On the, on the resilience front. One of the things that we're trying to do is to develop better mapping tools, just to understand where the impacts are, to elevate our understanding of what kind of damages we see already, and what kind of damages we might anticipate seeing over the course of the next decade or so. That's involved all the agencies. The president's committed us as a government to try to build resilience into the government's infrastructure, its own infrastructure, and then to support communities as they build their own domestic internal infrastructure. So that's a, a significant piece. There are resources being available, made available by almost all the agencies for different sectors. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture has got programs for the uh, farming community. NOAA is doing work with coastal information and weather information to help update and upgrade risk maps and potentials. The Department of Commerce has been pretty deeply engaged with small and medium-sized enterprise. The uh, Interior Department has got a whole series of programs managing land uh, and uh, land structures. The Corps of Engineers looking at bolstering the flood zone mapping and the structures that manage how it does the deployment of its own resources to improve resilience in infrastructure that they, they are responsible for. So that whole suite of things is underway. There's going to be an open question, though, about where the resources come from. And here, ultimately, it's going to end up being largely private-driven. And here I would submit that we're seeing a much more mixed story. It's much less evident that people have yet begun to make the investments required to build adequate resilience. Now, it's a little slow. People tend to react after the fact. The question ultimately is, will we change some of the laws that we'd have to change to modify the structure? So for example, FEMA will provide you with insurance that will pick up the damage costs for uh, various kinds of weather disasters. But you know what they pick up? Is the cost of replacing exactly what you had. They don't actually pick up the cost of the improvements to make it more resilient. There's a good reason for that. The idea was not to have the federal government defray the cost of building your you know, fancy new space. But the problem is that now in this new world, you want to make these improvements on an ongoing basis, and we haven't put those kinds of systems into place. The other end, you have the private sector. Some pretty interesting things happening. I'm struck by some of our largest companies. Walmart's an interesting example, but at the other end, so is Duke Power. I'm seeing real change in the way they're making their own deployments of their own assets to build resilience into their infrastructure. Walmart's doing it for logistics. They're thinking about where they have to deploy uh, resources in case of things being cut off by storms. You've got a series of things happening in the power sector where people are building new capacity for coastal intakes of water to cool the plants or managing heat stress those kinds of things are beginning to be rolled into the planning structure. On the international side, it's not, uh, it's not any easier, but it's a more diverse community. There's a lot of work underway currently being run by USAID helping countries do planning for impacts. We've got a series of what were called national adaptation plans for which the Green Climate Fund, created as part of the Paris deal and in the run-up to the Paris deal, has got between two and three million dollars per country, per developing country, to help them put in place a series of national plans. And organizations like USAID actively involved in facilitating the development of those plans and the design to make them more robust. Others, Germany, the UK, Japan, all supporting these kinds of endeavors. So we're seeing an increasing level of attention and focus on that. The idea ultimately is to think about a balance between the adaptation and the mitigation financing that's provided in order to address exactly this problem. Carl mentioned that there's about uh, uh, a small number of countries responsible for the bulk of emissions. It's very true, very small number, 20 countries, give or take some, 75, 80% of emissions. That means you've got another 180 countries that didn't do very much to create the problem, but feel the impacts. 
And that's been a concern that you see in the process, in the negotiation, in the convention discussions, and that's the community that needs this kind of support to help them out of this, out of this bind. Okay, great. Um, next question, there's one right here in front. Yes, um, thank you. And again, don't forget to, your name and affili affiliation. Yes. Albert Nahas from Chenier Energy. Thank you very much, great moderation, excellent speech. I note though with a little feel of chagrin and despair that there's a, a very strong anti-fossil fuel bias, which I understand. But US, the US has reduced its, its greenhouse gas emissions after Kyoto, much more than any Kyoto signatory, and that's because of the use of natural gas. Natural gas is also um, well poised to help um, in developing countries uh, afford a cleaner, less emitting uh, energy source until the development of renewables um, on an economically viable scale. Um, you mentioned uh, Saudi Arabia, but two Gulf countries have already imported US-based natural gas. Is there going to be any effort at COP22 to put natural gas in a different uh, basket than the other fossil fuels as one that is actually reducing emissions while maintaining current levels of electric uh, power generation? So the, the answer is no, but for somewhat different reasons than perhaps you might think. Uh, it's not so much a function, and I hope I did not come across as being anti-fossil fuel. I wanted to come across as being anti-carbon. And the option there, in my mind, plays out in a series of different solutions, one of which is to, to, to move yourself from high-emitting sources to low-emitting sources. And in that transition, gas, clearly for the United States, has played an absolutely central role. There is no way we would be down as far as we are if we didn't have gas in the mix, if we weren't, in fact, phasing coal out and replacing it in many cases. And the price is clearly competitive. In fact, it's declined sharply from only a decade ago. They could go over at $13, we're now at a less than four. So you think about these structures, the economics and the emissions have worked hand in hand in this regard. But if I look out to 2050, gas is gonna have to be also captured and stored if we're to continue to use it at scale. And so to me, the question is not whether it's gas is good, it's whether the carbon is good and how I manage that part of the equation. So for me, capture and storage becomes an essential technology. And one of the things that I worked on when I was at DOE was thinking about how we could increase our potential to generate that kind of capacity. And I also see a variety of needs for backstop technology. So at the moment, we have a variable supply requirement in, in supply generation in terms of our wind and our solar. What's the model for quick ramping backup electricity when you need it? The moment, the single best choice is gas. There are no other turbines that work quite that fast except for spinning reserve, and those cost an enormous amount more. How do you marry these kinds of questions in a much more complicated system going forward? That's the exploration that we have to do. That's the kind of model that we have. But in all cases, if you have a high carbon footprint, and that footprint's gonna get smaller and smaller and smaller over time, it's not gonna work. We're not gonna solve the problem only with gas. We're gonna solve the problem with decarbonization, and gas is probably a transition to that end. Okay, we have time for one more question. Um, there's one here. Chris Holly from the Energy Daily. Jonathan, I wonder if you could give us a sense of, from the U.S. perspective, what is the best realistic outcome of the Marrakesh Conference? So thanks, Chris. Uh, listen, I, I think that there are, are going to be three buckets into which I'd put the, the, the discussion. The first one is going to be a recognition of the things at, the, this is the first political meeting on the climate side since this whole suite of outcomes, since Montreal, since the, you know, the, the ICAO deal, since the Kigali conversation, and since entering into force. So what does that mean? Ministers will come together and reflect on that new world dynamic. The second, Paris itself has a variety of explicit obligations that it incorporates. We are now, and we're to do by the first meeting of the parties, a series of technical tasks. They won't be done by this meeting because we no one thought it would come that quickly, but there's gonna be an accelerated timetable and a degree of urgency around that technical work. People will be sitting down and doing the negotiations over those particulars. And the third is a, a structured uh, set of discussions on what the Moroccans are calling the action agenda. 
And that third is a series of themed days. They'll have discussions on everything from energy, which gas will certainly play, uh, but so will renewables and efficiency and a variety of other sources. They'll have a theme day on water and agriculture. They'll have a theme day on forest. They'll have a theme day on finance. They'll have a theme day on adaptation. So a series of these days over the course of the week where senior figures from around the world with expertise in each area will begin moving us away from the range of negotiation into the discussion on implementation. It's a big shift. Paris was negotiation. Morocco started phase two, the implementation phase. That's what's coming out. I'm going to grant myself the privilege of one final question, which is do you anticipate a Morocco document? Uh, something that will be where this will be inscribed and gaveled through and sort of will take away and say this is the concrete takeaway? I mean, it sounds like a lot of, you're talking about, you're describing a lot of discussions. Yeah. I don't know yet. I think that's a good question. I think it remains to be seen. I could see some of the pieces coming out in the standard form that we always have from these agreements, which are decisions. So you have to have a decision with a timetable. You have a decision with the program of work. You have a decision recognizing conclusions that have been reached that will be captured by the conflict of the parties uh, to the Paris Agreement. That set of decisions is what we tend to use as our basic structure. Will the first decision, CP1, uh, that comes out of Morocco, be a political statement? I think it will be. How much will be in it? I think that's going to be partly a function of these discussions. How do you recognize progress we've made? but don't rest on your laurels and demand the next stage. Historically, the host country has wanted that kind of a document. The, uh, the, the Paris Agreement, the Lima Accords, the uh, Indaba in South Africa. Each one of these has their own kind of structure. I would think that the Moroccans would want something that they can say, this is what happened at our conference. We did these things. We can look back with pride as the president and the host, and we would certainly endorse that kind of an effort. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks We're out of time. Much. It's a great conversation. We really appreciate it. I, wa I want to thank uh, Jonathan and Coral for this incredible discussion. Great moderation. Great questions from the audience. Thank you all for being here. And we look forward to your coming the next time on our next program. And so once again, let's give a round of applause for Jonathan and Coral.